I want to touch on two areas today, and it's point number nine and point number 10. And point number nine is to do with apology, the art of apology. Those of you who've come to some of our couples breakfast, you would have heard me speak on this topic, but I want to just take it a bit deeper. Say to the person next to you, I want to go deeper. All right. For any relationship to work, you have to be able to say, I apologize. And an apology is not the same as saying, I'm sorry. When I first got married, someone said to me, the, most, the two most important phrases in marriage is, I love you and I'm sorry. And I know what they were saying and I know what they were meaning. But I want to say to you this morning that there's a difference between saying I'm sorry and a full biblical apology. The starting point of a full biblical apology is you literally are apologizing to God first. You literally are convicted by your sin and you see it as sin. You label it as such and it's first toward God. Otherwise, it will be a fake apology. Amen? And I'm telling you, if you master this, it takes all your relationships to another level. If you master this and you can humble yourself to ask for forgiveness, to make a genuine biblical apology, it takes your relationships to another level. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 25. It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled, reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly, with your adversary who is taking you to court. This is very powerful. It's not just speaking of taking you to court literally, okay, where there's a judge. It's talking about someone who's accusing you. It's talking about someone who's judging you. It's talking about someone who's got an issue with you. And the key thing here, I believe, is settle matters quickly. If you want your relationships to be sustainable, you have to be able to right wrongs. You have to be able to settle matters quickly. I counsel lots of couples and one of the patterns I've seen is that people sweep things under the carpet. People don't address matters quickly. Are there any issues you have right now with your loved ones? It could be parents. It could be siblings. It could be your spouse. It could be your girlfriend, your boyfriend or courting partner. That sounds more spiritual, right? So funny in church circles, you know, you have someone who's in a worldly dating sort of pattern set up, but whenever they're speaking to their pastor, pastor, this is my courting partner, and they think that just by calling it, that it spiritualizes it, okay? Anyway, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do you know what this shows me? Jesus here is basically saying to us, it's better to be reconciled than to make all sorts of sacrifices. It's better to be reconciled and in right relationship than overcompensating for your lack of relationship by your spiritual activities. Are you hearing me this morning? He's basically saying if you are there at Ignite, praying very loudly and powerfully, rather press pause on that and make sure you're in right relationship. You see, what has happened in church circles is very often we think that our spirituality can cover up for our lack of relationship. 
We think that by being spiritual, we can compensate for not connecting deeply with people and being in right relationship with them. You can't. So the emphasis of this verse is actually speed. It's actually to do with speed. And what tends to happen is if you look in scripture, you'll see examples of fake apologies, faint apologies, and non-apologies. You know, what a, you know what a fake apology is? It's when someone says, I'm sorry if you're feeling hurt by what I did. You get what I'm saying? They're not, they're not sorry before God. I'm sorry if you're a bit sensitive about that particular thing. That's a fake apology. You know what a non-apology is? It's where someone acts like they're apologizing, but they're not really apologizing. Have you ever had that in your relationships with people? All right? I'm sorry, but. So they basically justify what they did. Right? And come on, those of you who are married in relationship, there's lots of opportunity for that. Those of you working under someone, maybe it's a difficult boss, there's lots of opportunity for that. So if you're going to apologize, make sure it's a biblical apology. Don't weaken the apology. And I'm going to show you in scripture, and I'm going to give you an apology process that you can go through. Right? You know, do you ever have it when people do something wrong to you over and over again, and they keep saying sorry, and you end up confused. You're like, this person keeps saying sorry, but they keep doing it. Should I tell you why they keep doing it? The sorry was not genuine. It was a fake apology. They were just saying, I'm sorry to maintain relationship with you. They were just saying, I'm sorry to silence you because you keep bickering about it. But it wasn't a genuine apology. Let me give you an example in scripture of a non-apology. Do you remember Saul, King Saul? Remember King Saul? Right. Let me show this to you. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 24 to 26. So Samuel has challenged Saul concerning Saul's disobedience. Remember, there was the issue with the Amalekites, right? And the instruction Saul had been given was you need to actually destroy everything. All these people, all their livestock. But Saul didn't do so. Right? He only destroyed the livestock that was lame, that was not that great, but the best he kept. And what is interesting for me here is he then goes and he starts making sacrifices and so on. So he did what was right in his own mind to do, which is what we often do. We often, instead of obeying God, we're like, yes, God, I didn't quite obey you there, but look at my giving. Look at my generosity. Look at the good dad I am. Look what I did for my wife the other day. And that's where Samuel challenges Saul and says, obedience is better than sacrifice. Some of you are in a place in your life, and please listen to me very carefully. You're in a place in your life where you're living in partial obedience. And you've justified your partial obedience by your sacrifices. Yes, I might not be listening to God in this sphere of my life, but look at the sacrifices I've made for my family or my extended family. Look how, I, how hard I work for my boss and how much money I make for them. Look how much I give at church. But God is asking you, did you obey the very thing that I said you must do? 
And that word obedience in scripture is to do with hearkening. It's to do with listening to God's voice and doing what he said you must do. Are you with me this morning? Let's go a little bit deeper because this is what he then says to him. So then Saul admitted to Samuel. This is right at the, right at the end. He admits to Samuel, yes, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions. You know what I like about Jesus? He teaches in instruction. If you look throughout the Gospels, he teaches in instruction. Do not last. Right? I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. Very powerful. Very often the Lord's command comes through instructions. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Can you see that he's still blaming the people? He's still just trying to highlight to Samuel that, you know what? Yes, I've sinned. So at least he's made progress. He's now admitted he sinned. He also admits that he didn't listen to Samuel and he disobeyed God. But he rationalizes why. You know, very often we actually struggle to get to a place of apology to someone else because even before God, we're still rationalizing our behavior. Are you hearing me this morning? He says, I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. There's a powerful truth here. Very often we disobey God because of fear of man. And you know what's scary here? Very often we disobey God because of fear of man and because of man's perceived demands. Often the people haven't even made those demands directly to us, but we anticipate the demands and we're like, I'm sure my family wants me to do this. I'm sure my family wants me to go to those rituals. When was the last time they actually said, you have to do so, otherwise we'll banish you. But in your mind, because it happened once to your third cousin, now you're like, oh, that's what fear does. Fear exaggerates the consequences of rejection. So it says here, seriously, it says here, I did what they demanded, but now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I've done all this bad stuff, but please, I need to maintain my status in the eyes of the people. I've done all this bad stuff, but please keep endorsing my ministry. Because here's Saul, who, has now, who had now crossed over to a priestly ministry and was now trying to do these sacrifices by himself, disobeying God. And he's now saying, please, Samuel, just still come with me. Yes, I acknowledge. Yes, I do that. But still come with me. It's not a genuine apology. Are you following this morning? He still wanted a good reputation before the people. He wanted to cover things up. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king of Israel. Something that a lot of Christians don't understand is that God promotes, but that same God also demotes. Scriptures tell us that I am the Lord who raises up one and puts down another. Amen? Amen. He's a God who promotes and he also demotes. There are a lot of Christians today who've been demoted in the spirit realm, but the dangerous thing is they're not aware of it. I'm going to say it again. There are a lot of Christians today who've been demoted in the realm of the spirit, but the dangerous thing is they're not aware of it. The glory has lifted, the glory has departed, but they're not aware of it. And here Samuel 
says, since you've rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king over Israel. Now we see what happens just before that. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. You know, the way Saul functioned, he was like that person where they know they've done something wrong, but you can see that they've spent more energy trying to find out, have people noticed? Could people see what I did? They're more interested in whether they are to be embarrassed or not. But they're not that interested in how has this affected the heart of God? And look what happens with Samuel, with, with, um, with uh, Saul. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? So Samuel's posture towards Saul was, Listen, dude, you can do the sacrifices. Yes, I know you want me to come and endorse you and you want to do all these wonderful things and look good. But you know what's even better before God? It's obedience. Your sacrifices cannot cover up for your lack of obedience. He wanted to maintain his reputation. He confessed his sin, yet remained selfish to the end. And he goes on to say, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Let's look at an example of a genuine apology. And you see this in David's life, King David. You all remember what David did, right? What did he do with Bathsheba? He sinned, he committed adultery, didn't he? Right? But remember what led up to it all. He lusted after her. And then what did he do? With Uriah, he caused Uriah to end up being killed in battle. We all know the account, right? Right. So, and Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And he thinks it's cool. The husband is dead. I didn't physically do it myself, did I? You know, we just put him in the difficult place in battle. And now I've got the wife I wanted to have. Now let's see what happens here. Remember Nathan the prophet, he then addresses the issue and he uses a kind of like, almost like a parable of sorts and he describes it in a certain way. And then he says, what should we do to this man who did this wrong thing? And what did David say? This man deserves to be killed. And Nathan says, this man is you. Imagine prophets were doing it like that nowadays. This man you're speaking of is you. Isn't it interesting that sometimes when we've got sin in our own lives, we're not aware of it, and we're still the one who goes out hypocritically judging other people, yet we've got that very thing in ourselves, right? Look at this genuine apology from David. It says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, before you can give an apology to someone, recognize the sin before God. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So he still experienced some consequences. Can you see that? Now, he didn't experience the ultimate consequence. 
Because the ultimate con- consequence for him would have been his own death. But this is what Nathan says. says, well, this is what will happen. Did he argue with it? So here you have Saul saying, yes, I did all that I did, but please still endorse me. But here you have David accepting the consequences. I want you to see this in a powerful way. If you look in the book of Psalms, he does cry out for mercy. Right? Um, In Psalms 51, verse 1 to 4, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. He called it what it was. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgments against me, your judgment against me is just. Now, what was God's judgment against David? It was serious. Basically, what Nathan said to him, he said, because of what you've done, the sword will never leave your house. Because of what you've done, someone else very close to you is going to sleep with your wife, with one of your wives but out in the open. That which you've done, you've done in secret. But it's going to happen in public. And here David is saying, Lord, your judgments are just. That is someone who's broken before God. That is someone who's coming from a place of recognizing their own frailty. Are you following me this morning? They're recognizing that, man, I've sinned, and God, whatever you want to do, you can do it. You're justified in doing it. I'm crying out for mercy But if no mercy comes, you're justified. You know what I've seen with a lot of us as believers? We do something wrong, and then maybe for a day or two, your wife doesn't want to talk to you, or your cousin, whoever you've hurt. And then you are demanding, you're saying, you must just let it go, of course, things must just be the same. No. When you're in a place of brokenness, you're able to recognize that, you know what, this is what I've done, I've done wrong. And if the result of it is the following consequences, you know what? If this is the consequence, so be it. You see, if we don't have that posture toward our own sin, guess what happens? Our mindset is very much, why are you doing this back to me? I don't deserve it. Yes, I know this is what I did wrong, but you shouldn't be treating me like this. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, God has been so merciful to us. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, better men than us have fallen. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, when you go out there and you're involved in a car accident and you begin to point fingers at God and say, God, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve it. We deserve way more. God is taking us as a people to a place of brokenness. And it's only in that place of brokenness and humility before God where we recognize our own wretchedness. It gives us a humility when we apologize to people without expecting anything in return. See, many people, when they apologize, they demand forgiveness from the other person. You must let this go. You must just forgive me. You can't demand it. Are you hearing me this morning? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, 
It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. You see, when someone is truly sorry in a godly way, it results in repentance. And that word repent means to change your mind and to make a U-turn and to change your attitude and behavior. Godly sorrow actually produces that. It works that. That's that word. It's the same word for works. It works repentance. But worldly sorrow results in death. That word salvation is an interesting one because it means to be saved, but it also means to be delivered. You know why a lot of people aren't delivered? There's no godly sorrow. There are a lot of people today bound by addiction. Many of them are not delivered because there's no godly sorrow. There's just, this is actually okay. I'm sorry that you don't really like it. I think you guys are a bit sensitive, but I'm telling you right now, if you want to experience complete deliverance in whatever struggles you have in your life, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. You see, godly relationships are built on godly sorrow. Worldly relationships are built on worldly sorrow. You see, what happens is if I apologize to my wife, and I think I'm apologizing, but I haven't repented before God, I'll commit the same sin to an, with another person. Are you hearing me? Because often what we, what we do is we'll say I'm sorry to someone because we can see they're upset about something. But we're not saying sorry because it's stemming from sin in our heart. We're not saying sorry because we're recognizing the sin in our heart. When you say sorry, recognizing the sin in your heart, you then don't do it again, regardless of who you're dealing with. Isn't it amazing how David then lost that child? After seven days, the child died. He had received the word that this child is going to die, the child that came forth from Bathsheba. But you know what? He was fasting. He was praying. He was in sackcloth and he was crying out, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy. And in that particular situation, the child still died. And he gets up afterwards and he starts eating and people are finding it a bit odd. And he says, yes, I was fasting and praying and in sackcloth about this because I thought maybe the Lord will have mercy on me and this child will, will stay and be alive. But since this child is dead, I will go to this child when I die. But this child, I can't bring back to life. So I'm going to just carry on with my life. Then he says he went in to be with his wife, Bathsheba. He says he comforted her by sexual intimacy. I'm not, I'm not at the couple's uh, thing, so I'm not going to go into that right now. I know some of you want me to, but he comforted her. If you're an engaged couple and you really want to come, just talk to me about it because I'll share with you which sessions you can attend, okay? There's one that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable having them attend, so we'll see how it goes, okay? But you can come to me and can make a special case, right? But what I find interesting about this is he ended up accepting the consequences of what he had done. Genuine apology. Then he ended up giving birth, having Solomon, okay? 
He ended up having Solomon through Bathsheba, obviously, right? So what's the process of apology? What's a biblical apology? How do we apologize to someone? The first thing you do is admission of guilt. Admission of guilt. That's what we call a confession. To confess means to say the same as. So God convicts you of a particular thing. Confession is you say what he's convicting you of. Amen? And when you truly confess, you're not just confessing the behavior or the action. You're also confessing the mindset behind it. So if I'm late for a date with my wife, instead of me just saying, sorry, I'm late. What is, it? What is true admission of guilt? I acknowledge that I am late, but I also acknowledge something else. I say, I was disorganized with my use of time. I should have left earlier. Very often when people say, hey guys, sorry I'm late, the traffic. That's not a true apology, is it? It's not a true apology, because the problem wasn't really the traffic, because if you live in Gauteng, you're used to the traffic. The real problem was, you know what, I should have actually checked and navigated well to actually see which route I should take. I left it too late. Are you hearing me? All right? It's important to do this before God and the, and the person concerned. This is what I did. And make sure you don't use a euphemism for it. You know, with euphemisms where we make light of the particular thing so that we still feel good and okay about it. Okay? Call it what it is. Did you see in these scriptures, they would use the word rebellion. I've rebelled against the Lord. I disobeyed the Lord's instruction. I was selfish. Call it what it is. Use the biblical term for it. Amen? You see, very often with a non-apology, you may express sympathy for the misfortune without accepting the blame. Admission of guilt means you're taking responsibility. You're not passing the buck. In Galatians 6 verse 7 it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. So you're taking responsibility and you're saying, Well, if these are the consequences, I'm man enough or woman enough to accept them. This is what happens. Amen. Number two, so there's admission of guilt. If I take your car to Nelspruit without asking for permission, your permission, and I come back, is it enough for me to just say, hey, I'm sorry I took your car? No, admission of guilt is I stole your car because I didn't ask. I stole your vehicle and took it to Nelspruit without your permission. Number two, Acknowledgement of the impact. Do you ever have it when someone says, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you, but in your mind, if you're honest with yourself, you still think, yes, I forgive that person, but they don't really know what it caused me. They don't really understand the pain I went through. You have that, don't you? So it's important, part two, acknowledgement of the impact. What is the impact on the other person? Hey, you know what? It meant that you couldn't do your errands. I'm sure it was frustrating for you. 
not having a vehicle all day. Okay? Hey, you know what? Let's say it's, it's to do with you pitching up late for something. I'm sure it puts you out because now you just have only 30 minutes to take us through all this material. You're acknowledging the impact of your behavior on the other person. So important. And I want to encourage you, when it comes to apology, craft your apologies. Craft your apologies. Sometimes when it's small things, you don't have to go into much detail. But a lot of times, working with people in family situations, it's so useful to actually craft it, to write it out, to make sure you don't miss anything. Don't shift the blame. What's the impact on the person? What's the impact on your relationship with them? It's very powerful when you say to someone, I'm really sorry about this, and I'm sure it's affected the trust level. I'm sure you don't trust me as much as you used to. I'm sure you now feel unsupported. I'm sure you now feel very lonely in this situation because I dropped the ball. You're acknowledging the impact on the other person. That's empathy, isn't it? Guys, this is so crucial because this is what heals relationships when you talk about reconciliation. Because you can come to me after and say, but I need to sort things out with so-and-so. This is crucial to it. Admission of guilt. That's the confession. Number two, acknowledgement of the impact. Number three, expression of remorse. Expression of remorse. This is where you say, I am sorry. I regret having done this. I wish I had never done this. I don't know what I was thinking. Do you ever have it when someone says, well, I'm sorry about it then. Like they're almost shouting the sorry back to you. And you're thinking to yourself, there's no remorse here. You're not, you're not apologizing like you're truly remorseful. Hey, well, I'm sorry about that, man. Hey. No. I regret what I did. You know that very often a fake apology is where the person is sorry for getting caught. You ever have that? Or the person who's been fornicating, having sex outside of marriage. They're only sorry when the other person falls pregnant. And then it becomes a, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. And they're all embarrassed and so on. I'm saying, but that's not the sin. God has chosen to bring life. The sin is what was happening way before. Are you hearing me this morning? Some people, it's, the, the mindset is almost like, I'm sorry about the consequences. I'm sorry about inconveniencing our lifestyle now. As opposed to, I'm sorry before God for the sin I committed. Number four, restitution. Restitution. A true apology, when you truly apologize before God and before man, restitution is important. What is restitution? It's a form of restoration. You are, you are making an effort to restore things to a place that is even better than it was before. So if you say to your spouse, hey, I'm sorry I was late for the date and, you know, hey, I'm sorry that, that we don't have dates that much anymore. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. You know what a true apology does? Restitution. Hey, here's how I want to make up for it. I know we haven't spent that much time with each other and I know that we felt like it's been like we're two ships passing each other by. So you know what I'm going to organize? I'm going to go right now to the internet and I'm going to book us a week away. Your parents can look after the kids, but I'm going to book us a week away. Can you see that's, restor that's restoration and that's restitution? 
All the women in the house are going, amen, amen. Thank you, pastor. That's what I've been believing God for. Nudge, nudge, nudge to my hubby. Some husbands are thinking, no, Paul, in my case, it's the other way around. All right? But that's restitution. Don't say I'm sorry to someone if you're not willing to go the route of restitution. My question to you is, what are you going to do to restore things? If you drop the ball, let's say you've promised someone something, that you know what, I will give you this by such and such a date. And then you don't do it. Don't just say to the person, I'm sorry about it. Go the extra mile and say, you know what, thank you. And I know that you are paying me for this particular work that I've done, but because it was late, I'm going to give you a discount. Are you hearing me? You know, I promised to do this for you. I'm really, really sorry that I didn't. I will do it, and I know it's a week late, but I'm going to give you an additional freebie. That's restitution. Let me show you, let me show you in Scripture. Let me show you in Scripture. Luke chapter 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Just process that a little bit. Think of all your possessions. This is a guy who is truly sorry that he had conned people. And he says, Lord, right here, right now, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. Right? You know that he didn't have to do that. When you stole something from someone back in the day, the restoration was times four, isn't it? Right? And look what he goes on to say. He says, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's, that's the, the basis. That's what he was supposed to do. But in addition, he's saying, I'm going to give half my possessions away. Do you know what he was doing? He was breaking the spirit of mammon off his life. If you're bound by the spirit of greed, one of the quickest ways to break it is become a giver, become generous, break the thing off you. And that's what he did. My question to you is, what are you willing to do as an act of restitution when you've harmed someone? In cases of fidelity, when I'm counseling couples, when there's been cheating and so on, I say to them, so dude, your wife is struggling to trust you. What are you going to do to make sure she can now trust you again? And the guy might say, you know what? All my passwords, she can have them. All my passwords, she's got access to all my stuff. And some people are like, oh, some people will cheat on their wives, but won't be willing to do that as an act of restitution. And that's just partial. Right? That's not the only act of restitution. They won't, they're not willing to do that. Like, yeah, but she snoops around. I remember some years ago, a guy said, yeah, but she snoops around and she checks my stuff. There's confidential bank stuff here and there's no repentance there. So what is restitution? This is what I'm going to do in an attempt to make up for it. This is my action plan to hopefully regain your trust in this area. I took your vehicle to nail spread, but guess what? I've come back and now I've given you a full tank and I see that your vehicle is out of warranty. So the next time it needs to be serviced, it's on me. Now we know servicing a vehicle costs a lot, but you're saying it's on me. Restoration, restitution. 
What I've found when I've worked with people in relationship with each other, this is what does it. The restitution bit. How have you wronged your loved one? What are you willing to do to restore the relationship? In the restoration, you're also making a commitment that it won't happen again. You're rebuilding trust. Number five, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said? If you're offering that sacrifice, but you know that your brother or your sister has got something against you, go and make right with them. You know that one of the quickest ways of building trust with another person is righting wrongs. If you're the kind of person who keeps coming and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Some of you have said that. Oh, Pastor, sorry about that. Oh, sorry, sorry. My question to you is, what are you willing to do in terms of restitution? And then what are you going to do in terms of reconciliation? Reconciliation is this. Please, will you forgive me for this? And remember, you can't demand it. Will you please forgive me for this? You can't then shout at the person afterwards and say, you need to drop this. I can see you still holding it against me. You can't. Please, would you find it in your heart to let this thing go? I can't demand your forgiveness, but I would like this relationship to be restored. Number six, you end off by making a request. And very often the request looks something like this. So it's another R, a request. You know what, this has been an area of weakness in my life. Please can you pray for me in this area? You know what, this is something I'm going to work on. And you know, I've said to you, this is what I want to do to restore our relationship. But I want to make myself accountable to you. Please can you challenge me whenever you see me drifting in this particular area? That's brokenness in our relationships. Unless we become solid in this thing of apology, our relationships are affected. So what are the different stages in the process of apology? Number one, admission of guilt, confession. Amen? And you call it what it is. Number two, acknowledge the impact on the other person. And that forces you to think about it. How did this affect the other person? Number three, expression of remorse. I'm really sorry. I wish I hadn't done it. Number four, yeah, restitution and restoration, okay, like Zacchaeus did. Number five, reconciliation. Do you find it in your heart to forgive me? And number six is the request. Number six is the request. Let me just say something um, on the reconciliation bit. There was a particular guy, a church leader, in America, he had two men who came to him confessing adultery. And one of them said, you know what? I cheated on my wife. But when I spoke to her about it, immediately she forgave me. She said, I forgive you. But over the years in our marriage, she's always used that as leverage in the relationship. You know what I mean by leverage? But you did this. When someone keeps reminding you of your sin. And then there was another gentleman who had the same situation. And he says, it took my wife a long time to forgive me. But when she finally said, I, forgave, I forgive you, she never brought it up again. Are you hearing me? 
Sometimes you've wronged someone in whatever way. And you might feel like they're not forgiving me. They're not forgiving me. But then when they finally release you, they've released you. So be very careful about the person who says, yeah, I know it's okay. Yeah, no, I know it's fine. I know it doesn't matter. It's fine. I'll just lower my expectations next time. Be very careful because sometimes those are the very people who will use that thing as leverage in the relationship in future. Which takes me on to our last point, point number 10, which is to do with letting go. For a relationship to be sustainable, you must be willing to let go. And when I talk about let go, it's beyond forgiveness. I'm not talking just about forgiveness. I'm talking about forgiving someone else, yes, but I'm also talking about making sure you don't harbor resentment because that resentment becomes bitterness. And the Bible tells us that bitterness defiles. You know that some people will say, yeah, no, I forgave them, I forgave them. But they're very irritable. They always get irritated and they harbor that irritation into day two, day three, day four. For a relationship to be healthy and whole, we must have it in our hearts that we release people easily. And I want to show you how you do this. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sin. Amen? When you love someone, you're patient with them. Remember that word patient. Macro thumos. Macro means far distant, distant, right? A long way. And thumos means passion or pain or suffering. In other words, when you're patient, you can suffer for a long time. When you're patient with your child, when you're doing homework with them, you're suffering for a long time. Come on, how many parents here? Right? Sometimes you're suffering for a long time, especially when they don't want to do their homework. That's what patience is. But how do you get through it? It's love. Because the Bible tells us love is patient. Love suffers long. Amen. All right? Are you suffering long with your spouse? It sounds a bit funny saying that, but we might have happy marriages, but there might be aspects. Maybe it's an aspect of weakness, and you feel like, okay, there's long suffering here. Maybe there are things you've told your spouse and you want them to change in that particular area, and they keep saying sorry, they keep saying sorry, but change doesn't come. I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, all right? Now, when you look in scripture, you're not supposed to raise your hand. <laughs> ah, all right. Now, now, when you look in scripture, you see that this theme of letting go is a strong one, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very, very strong one. Let me show you. See, letting go requires both forgiveness and patience. Love is patient. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. You know, there's some people who like doing that. I know a particular guy, he's actually an MD now in an organization. And I remember at a certain stage, I was coaching him and he said, Paul, I've got a black book that I keep. He says, Paul, when I see someone is messed up, I just write their name in that black book and I write what they did. And I use it as ammo so that when they then bring up issues, I come up with my black book and I open it and I say, but you did this. It's called being a gunny sacker. It's where you've got your arsenal of weaponry and you're just like, I'm just storing it. I'm just saving it. One day I'll use it. 
The Bible says love does not keep a record of wrong. Amen? And what was funny was I began to talk to his subordinates about this, saying, there's someone I know who keeps a black book. And they knew what, that was him. said, we know. We know he keeps that black book. <laughs> but you know what? Some of you may not have a black book, but you've got it in your memory. Some of you are very forgetful when it comes to everyday things. But when it comes to people who've harmed you, you know. You've got a very good memory. Isn't it funny how some people, they'll forget things, but when it comes to people who harm them, people who wrong them, ah, that memory start, suddenly starts working really well. Huh? Luke chapter 17, verse 4. It says here, And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, I repent. What does the Bible say? Forgive him. Forgive him. Why should we be so forgiving? Why should we let go? Because we recognize how much we've been forgiven. You know that one of the chief reasons why people don't forgive easily? You know what one of the main reasons is? They don't realize how much they've been forgiven by God. If I'm finding myself becoming judgmental, toward someone about something they've done. One of the things I've trained myself to do is, Lord, have I sinned in this very area? Because the last thing I want is to be trying to take a beam out of someone's eye or speck out of someone's eye, yet I've got a beam in my own eye, a plank in my own eye. And the moment I realize my own frailty, automatically it changes my posture towards that person. But if I'm oblivious to the fact that I've also sinned in that area, I will be judgmental. And you know what our problem is as Christians very often? We forget how much we've been forgiven. We forget how gracious God has been. I hear comments that some people make about other people. And if it's someone who I know well, I'll be thinking, ah, this is coming from you. How many of you, how many of you feel me on that? Often you see people accusing someone, saying, they do this, they do this. And you'll be thinking, but just the other day. You see, we tend to be blind to our own frailty and our own shortcomings. Say to the person next to you, God has forgiven you so, so much. And then say to them, so just forgive others. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2, it says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's that word again, makrothumos. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3 verse 13. Bear with one another, bear with each other, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone. How many of you right now have a grievance against someone? Raise your hand. You've got a grievance against someone. Raise your hand. It's okay. Maybe it's something that just happened two seconds ago. It's fine. We won't judge you and say you're not forgiving. Right? Well, the Bible here says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So here's my question. How did God forgive you? Did God forgive you where he says, I've blotted out your sin, but I want you to suffer. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did he forgive you? He didn't just blot out your sin. He raised you up and now you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In the same way that God forgives you, 
and restores you to a position higher than you actually have ever been. Bible says, forgive as Christ forgave you. Isn't that powerful? Some people have a mindset of, ah, but at least I don't badmouth them. I just ignore them. Jesus says, do good to those who persecute you. If your spouse has wronged you, go the extra mile. You know, in a lot of marriages, you'll notice, let's say someone, let's say your spouse usually makes you coffee all the time. And then you can see when they're upset with you, all of a sudden the, the coffee is dried up. It's not coming, right? <laughs> right? Or that person, I remember dealing with a couple recently, you know, that person usually is the one who cooks. Then all of a sudden, you start seeing that the cooking isn't happening. Right? If that person is the one who usually spreads the table really nicely, lays the table really nicely, and so on. You know, now when you're given your food, it's just like there. Or you know, yeah, you're, it's in the fridge. Whenever you arrive, you can have it. All right? But you see here in scripture, we're being told that do good to those who persecute you. So try doing this with your loved ones when they've wronged you. Don't be neutral because there's never a neutral ground when it comes to forgiveness. Don't be neutral. Like, ah, at least I'm not talking to them anymore. I have to protect myself. But, you know, at least I'm not bad mouthing them. No, go the extra mile and do something good. Jesus says, do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Jesus had an understanding, he had a revelation around this. Actively demonstrate goodness because if you don't, you'll become bitter. Amen? If you don't actively demonstrate goodness, you're allowing their weakness to control you. Because all along you've said to everyone, I'm a kind, caring person. I'm a loving wife. I'm a loving husband. But now because they're not playing to your tune or dancing to your tune, what happens? You're no longer being the loving, caring husband or loving, caring wife. What is happening? You're allowing their weakness to control your behavior. Ah, no, Paul. You know what? I work really well at work. I always go the extra mile. But the way they're treating me at work, hmm, I'm no longer taking work home. I'm now arriving late because they also arrive late. Can you see what's happening? Your value system has just been affected by your own bitterness. See, very often our impatience is hypocritical. What do I mean by that? Whenever you are impatient with someone else, it's hypocritical. You know why it's hypocritical? How patient has God been with you? Just think about it. How long did it take for you to get saved? Just saved, first of all, for those of you who are saved. If you're not yet saved, there'll be a chance just now for you to give your life to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Right? How long did it take you to get saved? Then after you got saved, how long did it take you to get discipled and delivered of stuff? How many years were you in rebellion? Then even after that, how long has it taken you to get into the fullness of God's purpose and God's call in your life? God has been very patient with us. But now when someone doesn't respond to your barks and your screams, you're impatient with them. Very often our impatience towards other people is hypocritical. With the same love that we've received from Jesus, let's pass it on to people around us. What does Jesus' love come with? Love is patient. It comes with patience. It comes with kindness. 
It comes with long suffering. Let's pass that on to the people around us. Amen. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 to 27, it says, In your anger, do not sin. So sometimes we're angry, but in our anger, we should not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That is such a powerful principle. It's one thing to be frustrated. It's another thing to stay frustrated for a long time. Some of you have been frustrated all year. It's one thing to be irritated by something. It's another thing to remain in that state for a long time. I'll tell you what happens. It turns into something else. That's why you'll never hear someone saying, I've been irritated with this situation, by this situation, since last May. Because it's no longer irritation, is it? It's become resentment. It's become bitterness. Often we remain angry because we're not willing to suspend judgment. Let it go. Don't judge the person. Often we get angry because of conceit. We overestimate our own righteousness. Why are these guys treating us like this? Why aren't they doing a good job? You can only say that to another human being if your mindset is, I'm better than you. Do you ever have it when someone shouts at you and you can see that it's coming from a mindset of conceit? What does the word conceit mean? Conceit is when you overestimate yourself, when you think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's what conceit is. This is biblical Christianity. I know the world will say, no, just tell everyone how great they are. But I'm here to say to you this morning, true humility is where you judge yourself soberly. You don't have a higher estimation of yourself. You don't have a lower estimation of yourself. You agree with the truth of the word of God. Amen? Right? So... Often we get angry because we entertain and agree with the enemy's thoughts. So we get angry because we're not willing to sustain judgment. We get angry because we are conceited. But we also get angry because we are entertaining and we are agreeing with the enemy's thoughts. Let me give you an example. I still remember early on in my marriage, I remember it was 2004, somewhere around there. I remember being in a situation where I was coming from a prayer meeting. The presence of God was so strong in that prayer meeting. And as I got into my car driving home, my, my wife wasn't at that prayer meeting, she was at home. But I remember feeling God's presence so powerfully and I was conscious of it. Then I had a negative thought about Tracy, about my wife. A negative thought. It might have been, how come she did this this way? How come she said this and this? As soon as I had that thought the glory lifted. From that day on, I became sensitive to my thoughts. Because I realized that sometimes we get thoughts that are planted by the enemy. And a pattern I started to see in those days was that I would have pleasant thoughts about my wife throughout the day. Then the moment I was now going to meet her, the moment I was now going home or wherever we were going to meet, five minutes before I started noticing a pattern that I would suddenly have critical thoughts toward her. Are you hearing me? How many of you know that the enemy can plant thoughts in your mind? And you can choose whether you're going to agree with those thoughts or not. A lot of Christians are not God conscious enough to say, this thought I've just had, is it my own thought or has it come from darkness? Am I now going to play the accuser of the brethren 
and begin to accuse someone based on a thought planted by the enemy? Could it be that some of the thoughts you are having right now about your loved ones are actually from the enemy? Be careful what you agree with. There's power in agreement. Jesus says, when two or three agree on a particular thing in my name, it shall be done. Are you going to agree with God-minded people based on the word of God? Or are you going to agree with what the enemy is saying and planting in your mind? Anger makes us do things that we are likely to regret later on. Just let go. It often leads us to sin. The Bible says in Proverbs 29 verse 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. An angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. This shows me that there's a link between harboring anger and sin. Benjamin Franklin once said, whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. Now I know there's righteous anger and at some stage I'm going to teach, I'm going to do a whole teaching around anger. But this morning I'm just talking about letting go. Letting go. You see, often people remain angry because the anger is working for them. Have you noticed that? So a child who has temper tantrums, why do they keep having temper tantrums? Because it works for them. Mom listens when I have a temper tantrum. Dad listens when I have a meltdown. And you know what? When we allow our kids to have temper tantrums, you know what it does? It teaches them how to manipulate. So they grow up and they end up being these people who manipulate their circumstances and situations and people by their anger. Ah, everyone listens to me. No one takes advantage of me. But in the long term, it destroys them because no one wants to connect with them. Because people will always avoid that which they fear. Have you noticed that? You avoid angry people. Like, oh, this person is angry. Or you don't always avoid them, but your attitude towards them is not genuine. You know people who grew up in families where their main goal is, how can we stop dad from being becoming mad? So your behavior now becomes codependent towards all the people around you. And if you're that angry person, people are running around you, stepping on, you know, trading on eggshells, right? But you never know, is it genuine or not? Be careful of anger. Let go. Let go. I want to close by sharing with you the stages of anger, how, how it often works. And there are many different causes of anger, but I want to deal with the one that starts off with frustration. You know that on a daily basis, people have 20 to 30 frustrations per day. So if you go and you want to make yourself some tea in the morning, and then you pour the milk, and then you take a sip of the tea, and you're really looking forward to that tea or that coffee, and then you see that the milk is off. It's frustrating, isn't it? Right? That's a frustration. Or imagine you get into your vehicle and then you realize that your tank is on E. You had forgotten to fill up the previous day, but you are rushing for a meeting and you're not sure where the next garage is. 
you're frustrated. So they say people have about 20 to 30 of those a day. And very often that's where anger begins. It starts off as a frustration, that's stage one. Stage two, and by the way, when I talk about frustration, I'm talking about mild irritation, right? Mild irritation. Sometimes you'll even take it out on inanimate objects. So you'll see people, if they've got a ball or something, they'll throw it, oh man, right? Frustration. And be very careful if that's you, because one day you'll take it out on someone. Stage two in anger is blame. If you don't want your irritation and your frustration to become anger, don't blame someone else. What I'm sharing with you is very powerful to embrace, especially if you struggle with anger. It's one thing to be frustrated, it's another thing to then blame. So then your mindset is, but I told him. He must check the sell-by date of that milk. But I told him yesterday, I asked him to fill up my car for me and he forgot. From frustration, it's now blame. And then the third phase, and this is now you're getting more and more angry, is that person deserves to be punished. But you still think you're righteous. I remember a lot of this is happening subconsciously. You still think you're righteous because you're like, I'm not doing anything horrible to them, but I think they deserve to, to learn a lesson here. But I'm not going to be the one who does it, but they deserve to learn a lesson. And then they come to you and they might say, oh, you know what? I was stuck in traffic for a long time. And you're like, yeah, you must learn. It happens to all of us. Are you seeing where I'm going? They deserve to be punished. Hey, my boss didn't give me that raise. Yeah, no, that will teach you. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's good, you know. Must be patient. Things don't just come easily on a silver platter. So you want things to go wrong in their lives because you feel they deserve to be punished. And then the next stage after that is, I will punish you. I will be the one who does it. One lady who worked for Boeing, she was being taught these principles and she was like, but I, I'm often angry with my husband for not listening and the kids for not doing what I asked them to do and people cutting in the traffic, but I don't go out and punish them. Then she was challenged, okay, with your husband, what do you do? She says, well, I just ignore him. He just does his stuff and then I just carry on with my stuff. You see where I'm going? Her form of punishment was emotional withdrawal. And you see, at this stage, when we then punish the other person, if you're a violent person, you hit the other person. You withdraw maybe financial assistance, if it's maybe someone who you usually help out financially. And at this stage, it's full-blown wrath. And when I'm speaking of wrath, I'm speaking also of fury, I'm speaking of rage. You step into a realm where your anger is out of control. And that's very often the space where there's a stronghold of anger and you have demonic assistance. In other words, when you're now violent, there's actually a demon helping you in your violence. And the more you allow that to happen, remember a stronghold is an unchallenged thought. The more you allow this anger thing in your life, ultimately what ends up happening is you have a spirit of anger. And you end up doing things. You know, we talk about passions of crime. A lot of people who are killed today, it's domestic violence. 
they killed by the very people or very person who loved them the most, supposedly. Why am I saying all of this? It starts off with that irritation. Let go. Forgive as you've been forgiven. The moment you start seeing that frustration building up, let go. Start each day on a clean slate. Two main points today. We must apologize. And number two, we must let go. Let's pray.